as we continue our series in emotions. James chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. So a couple of weeks ago, Mallory and I went to the beach uh, over Memorial Weekend, and usually when uh, I go on vacation, I really try to focus on my reading. And so what I used to do is I would bring a bunch of books, intending to read a little bit of all of them, but I end up reading none of them, just because there's too many books. So this time I just picked one book. No, not one, just I took two. Uh, And one of them was a pastoral theology book, and the other was a historical book. And you've probably heard of the historical one. It's a movie now. It's called Lone Survivor. And it's certainly, for us anything else, certainly not a book for the faint of heart. Um, But it's the eyewitness account of this guy named Marcus Luttrell, who's a Navy SEAL. and, And his SEAL team's demise at the hands of the Taliban back in 2005 uh, I think to this day is the one of the greatest uh, SEAL um, uh, tragedies in history. So a- as the book book's title says, right, he escapes as the lone survivor. And, and, and through the book, he talks about the extreme training that the Navy SEALs go through. Uh, that he talks about the missions, the kind of missions that they go on, and, and the whole ordeal that cost many of his closest friends their lives. And it really is it's an inspiring book. And I didn't intend to read a book like that over Memorial Day weekend, but it really pumped some patriotism in me. Like, my computer background is usually like mountains or something. Now it's an American flag, you know, just, ah, yeah. As I said, though, it's not for the faint of heart. He not only talks about gruesome injuries and gunfights, but the way he writes isn't for the faint of heart either. It's because you can tell he's angry. Uh, He's angry that he couldn't do more to save his teammates. He's angry at the bizarre circumstances that led to their deaths. He's, he's angry at the Taliban. And, and probably most of all, most pointedly of all, he's angry at, at politicians and the media and for their often unfair portrayal of the military. And, and as I was reading this book, I felt two things really trying to latch onto my heart. One was inspiration to be like a Navy SEAL. And as you can probably tell, I'm well on my way to becoming one. Ha, yes, yes, it's funny. The other, the other thing, though, was anger. Because it's easy to see why Marcus Luttrell was angry. We live in a cultural moment that makes its trade on anger. Outrage is the currency of the day. And I think we're familiar, right, by this point of seeing anger, right, in secular culture. There seems to be outrage about everything. But what we can be blind to is the anger that festers in our own circles and in our own tribes. The left and the right have anger problems. It's a cultural problem that we have. And the reason I want to point that out is because just like in reading that book, anger can latch onto our hearts without us even realizing it. Anger is powerful. It hijacks our hearts and it hijacks our responses to things and our thinking about things and it becomes nearly impossible to untangle anger from the way it controls us. And here's the thing that makes this tricky. When we're angry, by default, we don't think we're wrong. When we're angry, by default, we think we're right. 
Anger happens because we think we're right and we have the right to be angry about something we perceive where we've been wronged. And this morning, I have the difficult task of convincing a room full of angry, self-righteous people that they are wrong. Yes. So in order for our hearts to be prepared to receive God's word, let's start with the presumption that somewhere in our hearts we are angry at something and that anger needs to be brought out and dissected and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Let's start with that presumption. Let's assume that we are wrong and that God wants to radically change us, not so that we can be right, but so that we can be more like Christ. Let's read James chapter 1, 19 to 21. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I think James in this short passage teaches us three things about anger. First, anger is pride unhindered. Anger without a leash. The the first thing that James does in this short passage is to give us an exhortation. And this exhortation comes in two parts. And and the first part of this exhortation is to know. Right? He says, He says, know this, my beloved brother. So he exhorts them. I want you to know something. I want want you to realize something. Uh, And this is important because this is exactly what we've been talking about. Oftentimes, the anger that festers is unseen. It's not immediately clear or not not immediately noticeable. And so here's the rub. We're the last people to see our own anger. And our anger makes us the last people to see our own shortcomings and faults. The worst times that I am, like, or the times that I'm least open to correction is when I'm most angry. That's why when my lovely wife, who is also a self-designated front seat driver, tries to correct me when I get angry or impatient while driving, doesn't meet me as a correctable, humble husband. She gets a taste of angry, self-righteous husband who doesn't need correcting So we need a doctor to help bring this to the surface to help us see it. So it's important. He says, know this, realize this, see this. So James, the doctor says, know this, realize this, see this. The second part of the exhortation, verse 19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I think we understand that sounds nice, but when it comes to everyday practice, it sure doesn't feel nice. That's because if you think about anger and why we get anger, we're angry when we're trying to protect something. And most often it's an idol. Uh, Maybe it's the idol of protection. Maybe it's the idol of self-worth. Your self-worth is insulted and you're trying to protect your image or the idol of comfort. Something comes after your comfort and you get angry or the idol of ease. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. But when that thing becomes threatened, our default impulse is to lash out. 
And the reason James, what James says doesn't feel nice is because at that point we're letting ourselves get attacked. Like we're letting what's threatening us have its moment over us. Remember what we saw in Proverbs? A fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.2 The thing is, we don't like to listen. We like to talk. And we like to talk our way out of being corrected or talk our way out of admitting we're wrong. This is exactly, exactly, that's why I love the book of James because he, he'll say something, just leave it behind completely and pick it up later because he picks up anger again in chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? We want James to say it's because that other person has poor theology. We want James to say it's because they're wrong about politics. We want him to say it's because they think they're better than everyone. That's what's causing all the fights and quarrels. No, James says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The bottom of quarreling and infighting is anger. And anger is nothing more than unhindered pride. Unhindered pride is is the exact opposite of verse 19. Unhindered pride says, be slow to hear, but quick to speak and quick to anger. Quick to defend yourself. Quick to defend your position. Quick to attack others. And so, in this way, anger is actually a red flag. Like, Sometimes literally a siren, if we're shouting, right? A siren going off that signals our, that our hearts are trying to percept, pr- protect something in self-defense of pride. So anger is a red flag that something is happening in here. This is why that the guys, guys I know who, who insulate themselves the most from like criticism or cor- correction are also the angriest guys. This is also, by the way, why I want us to have multiple elders. Because the more the church's oversight falls on one guy, the less likely he is to see his own errors and become more insulated from having them pointed out. So one of you might know a guy named Mark Driscoll. He pastored a really successful church in Seattle several years ago, but he was forced to resign by his fellow elders because of anger problems. So what does Mark Driscoll do? He goes and he starts another church with no elders who can no longer point out his errors and his flaws and he's angrier than he's ever been. On the other hand, listening well, being slow to speak, and being slow to anger happens when we grant grace. Listening, guys, listen. Listening is an act of mercy. You'll read many times in the Psalms, they pray to God, be merciful and hear me, because hearing is merciful. God listens and hears us when we don't deserve it, when we least deserve it, actually. Not just you don't deserve it, but but He listens when we are least deserving. And so the other person may not deserve a listening ear. The other person may not deserve to have you sit and listen well, but that's the point of grace. 
Grace doesn't give the person what they deserve. In fact, it goes over and beyond and gives them what they don't deserve. So do you feel angry at something? Culture, politics, the world? Do you feel angry? James says, be slow to anger. Do you feel righteously angry? James says, be slow to anger. Do you have every reason to feel angry and are justified in every way? James says, be slow to anger. So James gives us this exhortation. Be slow, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I like that he puts be quick to hear first. That's the most fundamental and also the hardest to do is to be quick to hear. But some of you might be wondering, yes, but what about righteous anger? Because I have plenty of that. Well, James gives us the reason for his exhortation and why this is so important in verse 20. This brings about our second point. Anger is righteousness impeded. Anger is righteousness impeded. Look at verse 20. Okay, the, uh, know this, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I think, if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us, including me in this room, rises up and protests against this. Yes, but, yes, but we need to be angry about some things. Yes, but sometimes anger is a good thing. And I I think that's exactly why James phrases it like this. He leaves no wiggle room. There's no room to get cozy with anger. James, what James is doing is he wants to squash any attempt we might make to justify our anger. And he says, he says here that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so we need to ask ourselves, rather than just assuming this jargon, this language, what does James mean by the righteousness of God? And so righteousness, like many words in Scripture, doesn't mean the same thing across Scripture. It, it depends on where you find it. So sometimes righteousness is referring to God's own righteousness, like in His character and His nature, but Obviously, he can't mean God's righteous nature, right? You can't produce God's righteousness. It it isn't produced. It's not affected by anything man does. God is righteous no matter what. So he's not talking about God's, like, character, his nature. Uh, Sometimes righteousness in Scripture means uh, the righteousness that's imputed to believers, right? So when we believe in Christ, it's Christ's righteousness is now ours. It's credited to us. But he can't be that either. Because if it's imputed, if it's given, then it can't be produced. Christ's righteousness is given to us and credited to us by faith, not by anything we do. So the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What does he mean? I think he's using it broadly here. Follow me. What James means by righteousness of God is God's rule brought to bear among His people and among creation. 
In other words, the righteousness of God here means the display of God's goodness and, and His holiness among those He has redeemed. His righteousness is, his, is the display of His goodness. For example, one way that God's righteousness is displayed is forgiving one another or providing for one another's needs. That's the righteousness of God. On the contrary, James says the anger of man does not produce this righteousness. It impedes it. The anger of man impedes God's righteous rule among his people. So God rules regardless. God God is ruling and reigning no matter what. But the display of his rule is helped or hindered depending on whether his people display it. Listen, this is really easy to think about. It's it's exactly how the pro-life movement works. People should see the value of unborn babies and the lowly regardless. That fact is unchangeable, but that is helped or hindered based on how pro-life people behave. So, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not produce the display of His righteousness. And here we see the connection between the righteous rule of God and our own personal righteousness. Right? Without our own personal righteousness through obedience, God's righteous rule will not be displayed or produced. You see? Our personal righteousness, our obedience, is what will display God's righteousness. And what James is saying here is that anger has an uncanny ability to impede that, to reduce the effects of the Spirit in our lives. This is why we always find things like anger, rage, and outrage listed under deeds of the flesh, while things like patience and gentleness are fruits of the Spirit. Here's, okay, here's what I think all of this means. Let's consider that we have moments of righteous anger. And even in those moments of righteous anger, it's tinged with sin. There's always sin there. So it's never perfectly righteous. But let's imagine our brightest best moments of righteous anger but even in those moments of righteous anger the bible never gives a directive that anger is what compels us the bible says many things should compel us many things should motivate us and anger is never one of them not even righteous anger we don't think like this Our problem is we do think our anger brings about the righteousness of God. Subconsciously, we think without our anger, righteousness will not happen. But God's kingdom, and here's the rub, God's kingdom is counterintuitive. It turns everything on its head. His righteousness doesn't happen as we get our passions worked up and our anger gets stirred and our voices heard. God's righteousness happens in the quiet, overlooked, unnoticed obedience of 1 Corinthians 13. This is how God's righteousness happens. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's how God's righteousness happens. We will get angry. Anger is inevitable. And we can get angry at many things. Right? We can get angry at falsehoods and injustice and abortion and racism and sex trafficking. Right? There's many things to get angry at, but anger isn't what compels us. If we never even got angry about those things, a passionate love for Christ and a compassionate love for neighbor is what should drive us to care and to action. Not anger, right? Anger will be there. Anger anger will be present, but it's not the deciding factor or the distinctive feature. Anger is not what will bring about the righteousness that we want. We're driven by love for Christ and a compassion for objects of sex trafficking and racism and objects of abortion, injustice, and falsehood. That's what drives us. But not, not anger. Anger is pride unhindered. Anger is righteousness impeded. And lastly, anger is salvation obstructing. James, in verse 21, draws a conclusion from everything we read. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James says, Therefore, Because of these things, right? Because of what I've just said, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And what's helpful to remember is James isn't switching topics, right? He's still talking about anger. James here is identifying anger as the bottom of all this filthiness and rampant wickedness. And I I think the... The, the filthiness and the rampant wickedness he has in mind is the fighting and arguing that I already talked about in chapter 4. It's this quarreling. So in our, in our church culture, we know big sins, right? Uh, sexual sins, and drugs, murder, those kinds of things. But in the worldview of Scripture, the actions produced by anger are just as ugly, just as filthy, and just as wicked. Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So what we're seeing here is that anger, right, It can't produce something. It can't produce the righteousness of God. But it actually produces the opposite. It can't produce the righteousness of God, but it does produce filthiness and wickedness. It can't produce that, but it will produce this. It's like using a chainsaw, right? Chainsaws can't put trees back together. They can only tear them apart. If you wield it, it will only produce more Destruction. 
Put away this. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Instead, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. I want you to see this connection here because it's really, really important. James is making the connection between hearing well and receiving well. In other words, the ability to hear well in verse 19 is directly connected to the ability to receive well in verse 21. Setting aside anger and listening carefully is directly linked to our ability to submit to the Word, to Scripture. If we cannot do the former, if we cannot be quick to hear and slow to anger and slow to speak, if we can't do this, we will not do this. You want to know how else I know this is true? It's because it ties directly into the next passage, verses 22 and 27. And if you look ahead... It's about what? Being doers of the Word and not hearers. Being obedient and submitting to Scripture. If we get angry in our relationships, if anger is consistently rising up, then we can be sure we are not truly submitting to the Word. More than that, if we are constantly angered by something that's like outside of the word, then we can be sure the word is going to anger us too. That's when we start skipping parts of scripture we dislike or look for people who tell us what we want to hear. I don't want to be an angry preacher, always preaching against this cultural sin or this cultural thing or that, because that will be a stumbling block to what the word actually says. I'm not on a soapbox up here. Well, eventually, if this is true of us, just become like the politician who tells his base what they want to hear because that's what they're passionate about rather than a people of truth and repentance. And if we're not repentant, then that puts a severe disruption on our claim to salvation. That's, that's what verse 21 is about. It's about repentance. 